upcoming a new episode of The Golf Guy with John Rydell. John is someone whom I met earlier this fall, just a great guy. Um, He was SCGA president for a number of years. He now serves um, as SCGA general counsel, Um, has had just a tremendous um, life in golf, um, as you'll hear in our conversation. Um, And, um, you know, he's uh, 74 or 5 at this point and, you know, doesn't have much of a problem shooting his age. Um, it will tell you kind of what a player he is. He's, he's uh, and, and a wonderful person and really interesting to talk to. Is played all over, knows so many people in the game, and um, uh, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I certainly did. So upcoming, uh, John Rydell. Hello, folks. So uh, another edition of The Golf Guy, and it is my um, great honor and pleasure uh, to be joined today uh, by John Rydell, who has had quite a life in golf. Um, folks may recognize the name from his presidency of the SCGA, um, but that's just one of a number of things that John has done um, throughout his long uh, career with this great game. Uh, John, thank you very much for spending a little time with us today. Appreciate it. Um, and um, I think, um, you know, maybe just to sort of get things rolling, um, you grew up in Santa Barbara, and maybe just talk a little bit kind of how you got started in the game uh, would be interesting, I think, for people to know. All right. Good to see you today, Larry. Uh, I got started kind of by accident because uh, around 1958, when I was in junior high school, uh, Santa Barbara opened a municipal golf course, and uh, about the same time, the Lacumbra Country Club reopened after having been closed for 16 years. my father, who was an avid golfer, joined Lacumbra. Uh, at the same time, there was an accident at the junior high school where there was a fire in one of the home economic rooms. And so it put the school on half day sessions. Wow. And uh, myself and probably a half a dozen other guys all got the golf bug at the same time and uh, became very avid golfers and, and, and stuck together all through junior high and high school. Fantastic. And so that's how you first got started. And um, so did you play, you played in high school ultimately um, as you sort of continued uh, with your interest in the game? Yes. The, I, I should mention the, the, the first teacher I ever had, and actually the only one I ever had was Sam Randolph Sr., who was the head pro at the Lacumer Country Club for about 50 years. And uh, Sam's 92 years old, and I still play golf with him almost every Saturday morning. Of course, he shoots his age every time. Wow. Uh, I, I, went to San Marcos, I went to San Marcos High School, which was the new high school in Santa Barbara at that point. Uh, Santa Barbara, had a, as a city, had a pretty good history in golf. Al Geiberger came out of the Santa Barbara High School and, and was a very prominent golfer. Uh, but San Marcos High School in the early 60s and throughout the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s had wonderful golf teams and of course we played all match play matches in but uh, three of the players that were on my high school golf team eventually played on the PGA Tour in one way shape or form. Uh, The best of us by far was Buddy Allen. Uh, Buddy won either five or six PGA Tour events, uh, was in the top 10 money winners a couple of times and also won on the senior tour. So uh, we had some really good golfers and uh, 
we won what was the Southern section championship a couple of times when I was in high school, but it was, it was mainly because of Buddy always leading the charge. Yeah, that is such an amazing statistic to think that you're in high school with three different people who end up playing the tour. And of course, Bud Allen, I mean, it was a very notable player, as you pointed out. I mean, you must have thought, gee, maybe this isn't so hard to make it out there. I mean, you're sort of with that. And then it's just such a hard thing to get. I mean, we know today with the PGA Tour, it's just it's remarkable that you had that kind of experience with people on your high school team. Right, I did. And actually, San Marcos had some other prominent players as, as time went on. Uh, Steve Pate was a graduate of San Marcos High School. And, uh, oh, wow, I didn't realize Sam, that. Okay. Sam Randolph Jr. was a graduate of San Marcos High School. So there was three, three, at least three people. Actually, one of my great all-time golf trivia questions is, what high school has three people that won the same PGA Tour event? And actually, Buddy and... and Buddy Allen and Steve Pate and Sam Randolph all won what used to be that Pleasant Valley Classic up in Massachusetts. So three in Sutton, Massachusetts. I know. I remember that. It's Pleasant Valley Country Club. So, I mean, I grew up in Connecticut. So, you know, that was the other than the GHO in Hartford. That was the big tournament in New England. That's amazing. That's a great trivia question. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good golf course, by the way. That's a great golf course that no one's ever heard of. I totally agree. Sutton Valley, I totally agree. I actually played it once upon a time when I was in college up in Boston, um, but uh, which is a long time ago. But yeah, you're after, you're 100 percent right. Um, that that uh, that was a great tour event for for a long time. Um, but um, so so that's fantastic. And of course, you know, you mentioned Sam Randolph's dad, who's amazing. You still play with him um, and still playing. And of course, Sam, you know, was notable one of the more notable Southern California amateurs, great amateur career, um, the masters a couple of times, right. In 85 and 86, which of course, probably the most famous masters of all time. So you got a front, if I remember you got to sort of, uh, got a front row seat at some of those, right. You were watching those masters at Augusta. Well, I, well, I, went, I went with his dad to the 1985 and the 1986 masters and the 85 masters was the one, won by Bernhard Langer. But, uh, Sammy, right. they, they played in twosomes back then and they repaired after every day. And, and Sammy played his first round in 1985 with Gabe Brewer because they always pair amateurs with a former master champion. And then after that, he played well and he played the second round with Tom Watson and he played both the third and the fourth rounds with Jack Nicholas. And he finished like 18th or 19th wow. in the masters at that point. So, uh, and then he was back in 1986 because at that point he was a United States amateur champion. And of course that was the, what I, I consider maybe the greatest golf tournament of all time, the Jack Nicholas charged to win on Sunday. So, uh, and uh, I, I was without a doubt. And I've like so many people I've watched that so many times. I mean, I watched it live, but I've watched it over and over again on YouTube and stuff. It, without question in my mind, I a hundred percent agree with you. The greatest tournament. Yeah, you know, I was out there uh, at the top of the hill on 15, so I, I saw the second shot that Jack hit into the, the hole there, and then you could hear him the roar when he made that eagle, and then you could hear the roar when he hit it close on 16, and then we were actually there and saw Seve hit that kind of dying quail four iron into the pond. So, And you've never heard noise like that on a golf course. I mean, it was, it was stunning how much noise just echoes through those trees and up the hills there. Oh, I can only I can only imagine. And I remember, 
you know, that, that, that weird noise, right, when Seve hit that. I mean, no one, up until that point, you know, as much as Jack was charging, it was still Seve's tournament to win. And, I mean, he had such a great drive there. And that was um, that was that was an amazing shot that uh, he uh, missed hit there, right? It was a very strange crowd reaction because it was kind of a, it was kind of like an ooh, like, did that really just happen? Right. <laughs> it was... Uh, the other thing, the other thing is surprising about that tournament is a lot of people don't remember. Greg Norman had a chance to tie Jack if he parred the 18th hole, and he hit a second shot right and did not get it up and down, so Jack won. But the thing I've always found notable about that, just to show how golf has changed, and of course that hole was probably 40 or 50 yards shorter back then. But Greg Norman, the longest, straightest driver on the tour, his second shot that day was hit with a four iron. So. It uh, shows how much the game has changed from an equipment standpoint. Yeah, that is that is for sure. Uh, there's no doubt about that. You're right. Four iron, you know, for what was, I think, I mean, it's uphill, of course, uh, but still probably 405 yards back then to, you know, 465 now where they have it all the way back and people are hitting short irons. It's um, It's a different game to be sure. So what an experience that was. So, but just to go back to sort of, um, you know, you finished high school. I, I did, that's fascinating about the Steve Pate. I didn't know. I mean, he's another notable PGA Tour player. That's amazing that so many came from there. But you go on, and so um, you end up going east for, for college, and you end up going to Yale and uh, playing on the golf team there. Maybe talk to us a little bit about that. And, you know, of course, from Yale, obviously not only, you know, fantastic university, but what a golf course to be able to play. Yeah, I mean, people have joked over the years, and I've kind of bought into this that my favorite course at Yale was the Yale Golf Course. Uh, but it was, it's a, <laughs> it's a totally unique golf course in my in my opinion. And I've been lucky to play many many places, and uh, it's carved out of a forest. It was far and away the most expensive course at the time it was built in the twenties. Uh, it was pretty much of a uh, Charles Berlin McDonald, but Seth Rayner had a tremendous amount to do with it too. Uh, and every single hole on that golf course is memorable with the possible exception of 16, which is the, the first par five, which is kind of not really in, in, it's not really up to the same standard as the rest of the golf course, but there's some remarkable holes on that. Right. Golf course. Uh, back, back oh, yeah. I mean, they, you know, that, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, I totally, I just, every time I think of Yale, and I mean, I only played it a couple of times over, the, and, and none of them for many, many years. Um, probably I haven't set foot there in 40 years. So, um, but I just, that ninth hole, you know, has got to be the greatest Beeritz R3, um, you know, talking about Rainer templates, as you mentioned. I mean, what an incredible hole. I mean, I think you stand in the middle there, you kind of disappear unless you're like super tall. I mean, such a, incredible and with the you know up from the hill and you're going down over the water and you got the forest to the right which i've been in personally uh, at least once that i remember um and it's just a tremendous golf ball yeah well definitely if you get down in the dip between the the front and the half and the lower half of the green if you unless you're like eight feet tall if you bend over to putt you cannot see over the top so <laughs> right right exactly Exactly. Right. Exactly. It just totally all you see is the sky. I mean, it's an it's an amazing it's an amazing golf hole. 
So, so, but talk to us. So, so what it was like playing Yale? So you were captain there, right? If I'm remembering right at uh, some point, what was your college career like? Well, back then we, uh, freshmen couldn't play varsity sports. So I played as a freshman on the freshman team. And then I played three years on the varsity back then. Uh, all of the matches were match play and there were seven players on each team. And, and so it was just, you know, one point for winning the match and, and a half a point for tying. So all the matches were, were that way. Actually the, the time I would, and the season in the East was very short. Uh, we played from about right. April 1st through May 15th and generally had like 10 to 12 matches, uh, there were some really, really good players at Yale when I was there. Uh, uh, Dan Hogan was uh, an All-American and won the Eastern Championship when I was a sophomore. And uh, Ned Snyder was, a, was an All-American and won the Eastern Championship when I was a junior. So there was other really good players. Uh, uh, I, I was fortunate because I usually played number one or number two because they, when we qualified, I had the sort of golf game that came back very quickly. So early in the qualifying, I was always well up. But by the end of the season, those guys were certainly capable of beating me. But we had a very good team, and uh, we never lost a golf match during the, the three years I played on the varsity there. Uh, and we, we wow, won. Wow, I don't know that I knew that. Wow. Yeah. We won the Eastern Championship once and were third twice, I think. Sometimes the memory fades about that, but we, we never lost any matches. I know that. That's amazing. And of course, I know, you know, uh, going to your rival school and I've saw, seen the thing in the Crimson, you're, you're 69. I mean, just the, I, the notion of how hard a course that was, bad, you know, persimmon woods, you know, old balls. I mean, you know, you're talking about Norman in the distance, right? I mean, you know, this is way before 1986 when balls weren't going that far. And um, I mean, to be able to shoot in the sixties there, that's phenomenal. Well, that was, you know, everyone, everyone who loves this game gets one or two days in your life when everything goes right. Uh, and that was one of them. I mean, I, I shot 69 and I fairly easily beat my rival from Harvard, which made it better. But uh, as you, as you know, the two schools have had a very friendly competition for centuries. So, yeah, long time, long time to be sure. The great um, thing, the you, great sorry, thing about did you, did you, the great yeah, thing about Harvard was right. when you know every other year when we played at Harvard we got to play the country club. So, yeah. I was just so I was just going to ask you about that. So um, funny you mentioned it's exactly where I was going to go, particularly with the U.S. Open going back there next year. So um, uh, that was a great thrill for me um, to sort of because that's like walking through history. I mean, when you go into that clubhouse and that oil painting of Francis, we met and, you know, the clapboard clubhouse and everything. And um, yeah. So and and what a golf course. So I'm, I'm sure you must have enjoyed that. Right. Because that's a treat to play. Well, that's I mean, that's another one of the very greatest golf courses in the United States. Uh, for some reason, it doesn't show up as often as it should, maybe because they're pretty intensely private there. But if you have if you yep. know anything about golf, uh, you know, you go on the 17th hole there and you can see Francis we met's home where he grew up. And, uh, you know, exactly. you just can right. think about him playing that 17th hole, beating those two great guys from the, from England. I mean, it's, it, it if you're a golf nut, that place gives you the shivers. hundred <laughs> percent. Right. I mean, the ghost of Ted Ray and Harry Varden and, you know, 
And, you know, that iconic picture I'm sure you've seen of we met, you know, with Eddie Lowry, you know, with the catting for him with his, about as big as the golf bag. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that's, that's absolute history. There's, there's no doubt about that. And I, and, you know, and it's funny, right? I mean, that hole is kind of magical, right? And there, that's where, of course, Justin Leonard knocks in, you know, the 45 footer to sort of clinch the Ryder cup. How many years, you know, many, many years later. Um, so that, that hole is part of history, but, you know, I do agree with you. It doesn't get the publicity. I think it actually is going to now because the open's going back there. And, you know, um, I think Gil Hans touched it up a little bit and, um, I, and I've seen some of the listings that have come out recently, you know, golf just came out, Mag just came out with their top hundred worldwide. And I was interested to see how high they had the country club, but I agree with you. It's a very private place, right? One of the original five founding uh, clubs of the USGA. So um, yeah, you, that you're quite right, but I agree with you. It's a, it's a fantastic golf course. I mean, and it's very new Englandy, right? The rock, rock outcroppings on that, you know, I guess it's the it's the 11th if you're playing the old the regular course. I mean they missed the holds on you know you know this you know with the third nine for the open and stuff but you know that huge rock outcroppings it's it's got some fantastic golf holds. Oh yeah, sure. it's it's it is New England for sure. <laughs> <laughs> through and through. So so you you do that um, you know a very notable career and I I, I I'm. I'm amazed you guys never lost a match. I hadn't realized that. That's impressive. So you go through that, and um, then you're off to law school, and and you know, um, and and practicing law. So how were you able to sort of um, keep involved with the game? I mean, you know, you get married, have a family, law practice, busy stuff, but you were able to sort of keep involved in golf. Um, I take it um, maybe not quite as frequently as when you're playing in college or as a junior, but you still kept in touch with the game, it sounds like. Yeah, actually, I was in the Navy for four years before I went to law school, too. So, and uh, actually, oh, okay. I actually okay. saw, I was on a destroyer and we were uh, deployed to the Western Pacific at one point. And I, I actually saw some interesting golf courses oh, wow. in, in Japan. And also, I played one golf course in Kaohsiung and Taiwan. So, and it was, that was, it was a really? great experience. Wow, they I didn't had, realize that. They had female caddies. I mean, that caddy probably was about four foot, eight inches tall. And on about the third hole, <laughs> after she'd watched me hit like two or three shots, I, you know, went into the bag to pull out like a five iron and she blocked it and gave me the six. I mean, these, these women were really knowledgeable caddies. It was, it was surprising. And we, wow. actually, we, wow. actually, we talked her into hitting a few shots towards the end when no one was around. And I, I mean, I would guess that that woman was a single digit handicapper. It was, it was interesting. That's fascinating. I had not known that. That's cool. That's cool. Um, so you finish the Navy and then go to law school. Yeah, I went to law school at the University of Virginia. And of course, they've got a really, uh, you know, they've got a lot of golf down there, but there was very little golf played by me in law school. So, uh, but then when I, got, when I did manage to get back to Santa Barbara, I, I played at, at La Cumbra. And then I've also played, I've been a member for many years at the Valley Club, which is a a very special golf course in Santa Barbara because it's a one of the few Alistair McKenzie golf courses. Well, I think probably the only one in the southern part of the state, if I'm thinking about it right. I mean, obviously, you know, we've got Cypress and Pastiempo and, you know, uh, Metal Club. I mean, lots of them up north. But I, I'm trying to think Valley may be the only one in the south. And it's a gem, no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's 
uh, and I was the green chairman at the Valley Club for about six years in the in the eighties when we we made a the club made a very very wise decision, which was to uh, try to to get back to exactly the way the golf course was when McKenzie designed it, and uh, we made a really smart decision in hiring Tom Doak, who was not very well known at that point. Uh, and so, yeah, and, I was going. So this is '80s Tom Doak. So he really wasn't as well known. Uh, no. Nothing like he's become, right? Right, exactly. And but you know, he was to his credit. He, he knew a lot about Alistair McKenzie, as you know. He's he's written a book about him, uh, and right. the decision was made to really try to make the course the way it was. And uh, of course, that means it's not a modern golf course at all. It's uh, you know relatively short. There's not much much property there, and the fairway bunkers aren't necessarily where they should be for modern driver distances, but. We figure there's there's many modern golf courses you can go play if you need a 7,400 yard golf course, but it's it's nice to have a 6,600 yard golf course that that looks pretty much like it did in 1929 when it opened. So how did, I'm, I I totally agree with that. By the way, I mean you know I I think Cypress and Postiempo are both 6,500 from the back tees, and I would argue both of them you know, give you all the golf you want. But um, so, uh, you know, those green complexes are, you know, no one does them like McKenzie. But but so when when Doak did that, so did he unearth sort of old photos or how did he sort of go about the whole restoration process, which I'm sure you were heavily involved in being Greens Committee Chair? Well, we had very, very good photographs. Uh, it was just kind of an accident. About a year or two after the club opened, someone in a airplane went over and took aerial photographs of the whole golf course and we still had them. Uh, now, what was interesting is when he, and he was assisted by Jim Urbina, who's was with him for a long time. Right. And when they went, when they went out, so they yep. had a good idea from the air where these things were, but when they would dig, they could find out exactly where the greens were. Uh, and they were also fortunate in that only two of the greens had ever really been substantially changed over the since the course had been built, there'd been one that had been washed out. Uh, so they, they had the bones of the course there. Uh, and uh, I mean, they both did it, you know, they lasered the greens really carefully and they restored all the bunkers. I mean, they, before they did it, the, the bunkers had looked kind of like little round things and were oval and they put all the McKinsey uh, character back into the bunkers. So that today, uh, and actually Tom Doak, you know, he's been writing this series of books about all the golf courses all over the world with a couple of other guys. And, sure. and he Absolutely. did say about the Valley Club that uh, I, this is probably I'm not quoting him exactly right. But he said if he had to choose one golf course to keep playing on for the rest of his life, he would choose the Valley Club. And he can't imagine anyone making a different choice. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a pretty high he's as well traveled as anyone so that's a pretty high compliment well tom tom never i mean he tells you what's on his mind as you know so <laughs> I, I i'm just sitting here trying to understand how he and jack nicholas ever sort of actually worked together to do sabonic i mean talk about two strong-willed guys right <laughs> it's, it's almost incomprehensible but it's too bad there's not some videotape <laughs> Right. I, I can see exactly. I'm sure there's plenty of stuff off camera that would have been interesting. But yeah, I've never met Tom, but I've talked to people who have and to a person, they all say exactly what you said. You know, he is very he that he will tell you what's on his mind for sure. Right. And he's very thoughtful and he's very knowledgeable. And 
you know, and, and the good thing about when he worked on the Valley Club, he wasn't trying to make it into a Tom Doak golf course. He was happy to be working on an Alistair McKenzie course. You know, since then, over the course of his career, he's got some great canvases to make Tom Doak courses on now. I mean, Pacific Dunes and Barnboogle Dunes. Sure. And, I mean, I guess he's got this yeah, new one sure. in Ireland now that's, that's called St. Patrick's or something. So, uh, Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I mean, I, I am a huge Pacific Dunes fan. I, I just, I, it's particularly the back nine and, you know, and, and, you know, one of the things just talking about Doak a little bit that I give him credit for, and I guess we should give Mike Kaiser credit for this as well, because he let him do it. But, you know, that routing on the back nine of pack dunes is so unusual, right? I mean, you know, you've got the back-to-back par threes. um, And if I'm, sort of counting this upright, I think I've got four par threes and one, two, three par fives and only two fours on that back nine. And so it's an unusual rhyme, but I remember reading, you know, cause you've probably seen, you know, the book has come out on pack tunes and, and, you know, and he said, I went to Kaiser, said, look, I can do this conventionally and here's what it's going to look like. But if you really want me to use the land, right, right. This is the way to do it. Cause like 11, right on the uh, pack tunes in the back, that tiny little par three, which is one of my favorite holes anywhere. I mean, it only works as a par three, right? Because of that bluff. I mean, it would be like a totally blind tee shot if you made it into something longer than the short par three it is. But um, I, I, I'm a big Doak fan. I mean, I think, you know, I haven't played Barndoogle and some of the other ones, but I think Pack Dunes is just genius. I think it's it's a great, great golf course. Well, that, that book he wrote explaining how he developed that routing is really interesting. Very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah. got to go out. Of, you got to go out of your way to get to Barnboogle Dunes, though, because it's in Tasmania. <laughs> so we should talk about you. Have you know you've you've been everywhere, um, and so I, I know that. In fact, I know you just got back from you know going over to um, Scotland and been over there. But you know, as long as we're talking about Barnboogle and Tasmania, so have you played? you know, the sand belt courses in Australia and gone through those and stuff yes. as well. I, yes, I've been to, because, because of the Valley club being an Alistair McKenzie course, there's a McKenzie society and, uh, Oh, I should have right. Both New South Wales, which is in Sydney and Royal Melbourne, which is in Melbourne are McKenzie golf courses. So they're members of the society. And so I got to know, people from from uh australia and i've been down there i think six times and i played just about all the sandbox oh, wow. i mean melbourne really is for one area has you know let's just say an area of within you know 20 miles of a, of a diameter it has more great golf courses than any other place in the whole world i mean there's you can't even hardly wow. turn them all and uh they're all right there and they're all reasonably accessible if you make it you know arrangements far enough in advance so i mean the only one that's you know they're all pretty accessible so it's if you if you start far enough in advance <laughs> so and and they're they're all great golf courses too yeah i mean i'm sure they are royal melbourne just having you know never i've never set foot on it but just watching it the tournaments there i mean the way the bunkers cut right into the greens and everything i mean it just it looks fantastic yeah it's I mean, of course, that's, that's, again, it's, there's two golf courses there. There's the West and the East. 
but they play most of the tournaments right. on what they call a composite course. It's like the country club, you know, in, in, in Boston. Right. So, right. Uh, and I think on the composite course, there's about 12 holes from the West and six from the East. Uh, you know, I personally think that they, they do well just to stick with the West course. Cause it's, it's, it's very, very interesting golf course. So, uh, it's a lot of fun to play down there. <laughs> I bet. I bet. And, and um, you know, and just, I know you, so you've played up in Scotland. You've played all the way from Doorknock all the way down south. You've played, I mean, you've, and, and I assume you've gone over to Ireland as well and probably played over there or? or yes, uh, I've been to Ireland a couple of times. Uh, I mean, they've got, I mean, that that's another island that's just full of great golf courses. But, uh, I mean, you've got La Hinch. Sure. And, and you've got Bally Bunyan that are kind of down in the Republic. And then, you know, and, and then you've got right. Portrush. And I actually first played Portrush in 1987 when it really wasn't on anyone's radar screen. And, and it's gotten a lot more since they had the open championship there. And I mean, there's all of those golf courses in Scotland and Ireland that are along the, the ocean are just, they're fabulous golf courses. And of course, they're, how difficult they are on any given day depends on the wind. So. For sure, a hundred percent. I, um, yeah, we played Valley Bunyan in a steady thirty mile an hour wind, um, and it was brutal, but yeah. tremendous. Um, but it was really hard, <laughs> really yeah. hard. And and I thought County Down. I never made it up to Portrush. I thought County Down was fabulous, though. I mean, it what is. a I mean, setting, that, right, with the mountains. Yeah, it's, to me, it's interesting. County Down is an interesting golf course, though, because I believe that the front nine is far superior to the back nine. Uh, and without question, it's just yeah, kind of interesting question. in that way. There's, I mean, I think Port Rush is just fabulous all the way through, and I think Valley Bunyan's fabulous all the way through, uh, Doorknock all the way through. But, but County Down, those first nine holes just knock your socks off. Unbelievable, right? Just, just spectacular, especially when the gorse is in bloom for sure. Um, so I got to ask you this: I'm talking about all these golf courses, so. If I had to ask you your top three courses, I know that's a hard thing. Like if you know, all the places you played all over the world, give me your top three. Yeah, that, well, I'll that. answer your question, but I will say that I keep a list of ones that are tied for first and there's about 12, but so I'm, I, won't run the, <laughs> I won't do all that, but, but if I absolutely had to choose three, right? Okay, so Cypress Point definitely is on the list and uh, yeah. Royal Melbourne West course. And then I got to go for Royal Dornock just because it's the pure Scottish experience. I, I know that's a little, that's a little heresy because I mean, Muirfield and the old course are just, I mean, they're beyond belief. Wonderful too. So to try to limit it to three, but I choose one Australia, one California and, and one in Northern Scotland. That's, that's your, your fair man as always. That's a fair way to sort of do it. Um, so let me go to, I mean, I could talk golf courses all day. Let me go back to sort of um, uh, the stuff you did in golf, besides the wonderful courses you've played all over the world. Talk to me a little bit about the SCGA and kind of how you first got involved in that. I know ultimately, of course, you became president, but um, I think it'd be interesting to just hear kind of how you first got involved in kind of the stuff you did for the organization. Well, I first got involved because they were, uh, they were, it's about 1994. They were looking for some other people to be course raiders in the, in kind of the central California part. Santa Barbara is a little north of, of LA. Uh, 
So I joined the course rating team. Uh, and then after three years they, of doing that, they asked me to be on the board. And I was ended up being on the board for, I think, 14 years uh, and slowly oh, worked wow. my way through. And, <clears throat> you know, it's a wonderful organization. I met, I met people that have been become lifelong friends of mine, some wonderful people. And, and over time, actually during the time I was there, a couple of major things happened to me, the, one of the most prominent being that the, the SCGA merged with the public links, Gulf, Southern California public links. And I always right. felt that there right. should not be yeah. that, there, there, there should not be a separation between public golf and private golf. And, and I think that merger has been extremely successful. It's been, it's been very, very good for both the public golf as well as the private golf to have one organization. And then uh, just a couple of years ago, I guess four years ago now, uh, we also merged with the largest Southern California Women's Golf Association. So trying to bring right. all, all of the people that are playing golf under one umbrella has been, you know, I think has been a real accomplishment. Uh, most people just think of the SCGA as they, they run, they give you your handicap, but of course they do, all, they do right. a lot That's more, right. they do a lot more than that too, uh, because they have to rate all the golf courses to have the, to, for the handicap system to be meaningful. And then of course they run, you know, probably 80 or 90 tournament days per year, not only their own tournaments, which are, uh, also for men and women and for seniors and for mid amateurs and for amateurs and for juniors, but they also run the qualifiers for the USGA events uh, and also participate in right. the California right. amateurs. So there's a lot done there uh, that's, that takes a huge effort. And then there's a whole uh, governmental affairs section that tries to keep watch on, on issues in the government that are very critical to golf courses. And, as you can imagine, one of the most critical issues is water, and uh, and uh, coming For up sure, now, especially here in California, there's no well, doubt about California, that. In California, it's it's a major right. problem, and, and especially now that, it, it, and that's being another challenge to the what have been traditionally public golf courses is not only water, but the desire in many communities to build additional housing, and they look around in their community and they see a golf course and they go, well, you know, there's a hundred acres we can turn into houses, but that's uh, Exactly. Right. So we're, we're losing some public golf courses. It's 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 really tragic to have that happen because it the, the public golf courses serve uh, hundreds of thousands of golfers in California alone. So for sure, for sure. But it's it's a good organization. Um, it's been run by. It's got a great staff. Uh, that I mean, these. Yeah. For example, you take the people in the tournament. These people are true experts in the rules. They're true experts in how to run golf tournaments. Uh, the SCGA, in a, in a way, we've kind of joked. Sometimes we've been a, a, a mini farm team for the USGA. We probably have three of our former employees now with very responsible positions with the USGA. Uh, one of our former employees has been a, a rules official on the PGA Tour for quite some time now. So it's, it's I mean, you know, I know you feel the same way, Larry. Golf people are good people. <laughs> And there's a there's a they lot of high, there's a lot of high quality men and women that have worked for the SCGA, both the staff and the volunteers. Absolutely, I mean, and we've had you know, I mean, Jim Vernon worked all those years, you know, uh, you know, ends up being USGA president. It's, it has been a farm team for some of the other national golf organizations, no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, Jim, 
it's too bad they couldn't make someone like Jim the permanent president of the USGA. I mean, he came in and kind of calmed down a lot of the controversy that was going on. Very knowledgeable, thoughtful man that everybody likes. Uh, and uh, but you yeah. know, in one in one or two years, you're out, and the next guy's in. But anyway, and Peter James, who was about the same era, was also on the USGA board. So, uh, but Jim was Jim and Peter have both been really important people for the for the SCGA over the years and for golf as a whole. And you the without, without, all, without question, the SCGA has also been blessed with the last two. Uh, executive directors, Tom Morgan, who was the executive director for decades, uh, was extremely well respected throughout the golf industry. And uh, his successor, uh, Kevin Heaney, is equally well respected throughout the golf industry. Both of them have been in leadership positions everywhere in golf and they and uh, have been just superb leaders for the organization. Yeah, no, I, I totally, totally agree. Um, you know, you touched on, you know, the challenges for the game with the water, um, and which we certainly feel here in California. Um, I'm curious kind of your thoughts on, you know, another challenge and I'm hearkening back to your, um, so apropos your, your, your observation, you know, Norman hitting a four iron into 18 at, at Augusta compared to today. Um, how do you sort of think about the whole distance? debate and you know and there's so many threads to that right there's sort of you know there's the environment you know we're talking about water there's the environmental impact of you know how much more land do we need to build these golf courses to be long enough to deal with the distance but there's also just you mentioned cypress point some of these crown jewels that you know um uh you know i mean cypress point is never going to be obsolete in my book but i mean in terms of sort of as a tournament you know place you know it, 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 it some of our old wonderful golf courses, you know, um, seem to be, uh, you know, you have to, we have to back the tee so far up. I mean, St. Andrews, you mentioned there, I mean, I'm forgetting which hole it is in the back where they're all the way across the road now when they hit it. I don't know if it's 11 or 12, I've moved track of it, but you know, it's just, to see, it's, where does it stop and how do we deal with it? I know, you know, Nicholas, you know, for decades talked about rolling the ball back and, you know, and, and I'm, I don't, I'm guessing, you know, back in the 90s, you know, when we had the square groove stuff and, you know, the USGA tried to legislate that and the whole ping lawsuit and everything, and maybe they're a little gun shy now, but I just, I'm curious how you sort of think about that. Cause, and, and, and again, you know, just to throw one other thing on the table, USGA came out with that very long distance report, um, extensive, I should say, distance report, almost, um, God, it's been a while now. It's been sitting on the shelf. And I don't, I mean, maybe stuff's happening behind the scenes. I don't know. And I know they had a changeover in executive director at the USGA. So maybe that they're waiting for um, uh, Mike to get his feet wet a little more at his new job. But I'm just sort of curious how you think about the whole distance thing. Well, I think, I think that the problem, I mean, the horse got out of the barn in the late 1990s. And it was a combination yep. of ball going to the instead of the wound ball going to the modern three or four piece ball because the the, the geniuses right. that build these golf balls learned how to make them spin as well as go far so the pros would use them and secondly of course was the titanium right. drivers which you know made it so that the drivers could be much larger and the problem at that point from my view was that the usga was still doing its testing in new jersey with iron byron you know, using right. 
It, it was, it's, it's situated kind of hitting golf balls outside into a field in New Jersey. And it, it was, it was only set up to, to have a swing speed of about 110 miles an hour and launched ball, launched all balls at the same, you know, it's the same loft. And really what they needed at that point, and they had it, but they kind of lost the chance, but they needed to, to test balls with the modern equipment that they had available and put limits on how far a golf ball could go at its optimum launch conditions. Uh, but, you know, that's gone now. I think that the USGA is, has tried to stop things to where they are now. And I certainly support that wholeheartedly. Uh, you know, they were going along pretty nicely with just very, I read that whole long distance report too. Uh, things were only going out an extra yard or so a year. Uh, although over 20 years, that would be another 20 yards. Uh, but then last right, year, right. last year, there was another three or four yard bump. So, uh, you know, right. I think they're going to, they're going to have to do something. Uh, I was surprised, you know, they, they said they were going to like limit driver lengths to 46 inches. And there was a whole furor over that. I mean, I don't see why they couldn't immediately roll that back to even, 44 or 45. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, when Tiger Woods right. first came out on the tour, he was using a 43 inch driver. I mean, with a steel shaft for that matter. Right. But, I mean, I, I just steel don't. Shaft, right. Exactly. And, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure that putting a couple of extra inches in a driver shaft helps the average golfer. I mean, if I'm talking about the 10 to 15 handicapper because sure they develop a little more club head speed, but they don't hit it in the center of the club face. And, Really, it's that smash factor that makes all the difference. So I, I have a feeling that those the, putting extra length in those shafts is really helping the most skilled players, not the average guy. Uh, so I'd like to see them back on that shaft length. And of course, they can, you know, they need to just make it so they test golf balls. And I mean, you can choose whatever you want, but if you choose a, a club head speed of 117 miles an hour, which I think is about what the average PGA Tour is you ought to just say that no golf ball can be launched at its optimum launch conditions to go more than 280 yards. And I mean, it's simple to say that and they got the scientific equipment to do it. Uh, and then people that swing faster than 170 miles an hour, they're still going to hit it farther than 280 in the air, but at least then you've got a standard where you've, right. you've stopped the stuff. Uh, so I just like to see it. Yeah, no, I, halt I, now. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you can get, yeah, no, I, 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 yeah. it's going to be hard to get rolled back because, you know, nobody wants their distance rolled back. <laughs> well, for sure. But I mean, 117 miles an hour at two, 280, I have to do the math. I mean, is would, it, would that not be a rollback from what it is now? Or, I mean, if, if I took a, a 465cc driver, which is, I guess, what the limit is, and right. swung it in, and hit it squarely at 117 miles an hour. Would it go farther than two? I just don't know what the math is. It's it's a it's going to be a little farther than that. I'm just saying, the, roll it back just slightly. Uh, by that, slightly. I mean okay. it seems it seems to I, me. I mean, just look. Everyone's got their own opinion. It just seems to me that someone swinging a club 117 miles an hour, if they can fly the ball 280 yards in the air, that's far enough. I, I mean, for all the other reasons we're talking about, because you know, you're going to right. you end up having to have 500 yard par fours and, and you end up having, you know, far more acreage under turf on golf courses. Uh, I mean, you know, if someone hit it, 
I mean, it's, it's a very skilled player that can swing a golf club 170 miles an hour. So, I mean, if you hit it 280 and it rolls another 20, that's a 300 yard drive. That's, that's just my way of thinking. That's plenty far enough. And if you're, and you know, if you get well-conditioned, great athletes, like, you know, DeChambeau or Justin Thomas, and these guys can swing it faster than 117, well, more power to them because they still have to make the ball go relatively straight. So that's for sure. Um, And, um, you know, it's interesting, right? When people talked about tiger proofing golf courses and, you know, um, and, and only sort of thought about, well, we just need to make it longer and longer. I mean, it just played into the strengths of people who are getting it farther. I, I mean, I don't, I never understood that. From the first moment they said that, I said, no, they're making it so only Tiger and guys like him can win. A Tiger-proof golf exactly. course is, is a 6,500-yard golf course with really undulating greens. Right. That's a Tiger-proof golf course. <laughs> I, I totally agree, right? And when you see them, you know, and, and I'm still calling it the Crosby. I know it hasn't been called the Crosby in a long time. But, you know, the you know the, PG, the Pebble Beach Tournament in February, um, you know, they struggle and that is not a, and particularly the tees are playing in that they're not really long because the greens are really small and, you know, it's, it's a well-designed course, even Riviera, you know, they have the rough at nothing, but they can still struggle with that a little bit because it's so, it's a tremendously designed golf course. But, you know, I agree with you. I mean, if you're just going to add length, you're totally playing into the hands of the long hitters. I've, I've, I've just, um, I've, I've never understood that. Let me ask you one other thing about the, the distance thing, just as long as we're talking about it, would you sort of do that? Would you, when you're talking about rolling it back a little bit or, you know, setting a limit like that, would you sort of, how do you feel about bifurcation to use that term? I mean, would you be doing that just for the tour or would you sort of, you know, do it across the board? I mean, golf's one of these things, right? Where it's over, one of the appeals is, you know, you're playing the same playing field um, with the same equipment as the pros. Um, but we have other sports, right? Like baseball. I mean, people use aluminum bats all the way up to the pros. And of course, got a, you know, Mike Trout's hitting aluminum bat, he would kill someone. So, you know, we have a different set of rules in the major leagues that we do. But um, how do you sort of think about that? Would you sort of keep it uniform when you roll it back? Or would you think about it just for the PGA Tour? Or what? any thoughts on that? Well, I'd keep it, in, in, in my view, we'd keep it uniform because, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think that, what I'm proposing, I mean, kind of keeps the long, the long distance from getting out of control. And, you know, there wouldn't be any prohibition against the golf club, the ball manufacturers making a ball that goes far for people that swing at a hundred miles an hour. Right. We're just going right? to, right. right. So right. They can put, I think that a lot of the effort now has been to put into making the ball go farther for the people with high swing speeds. Uh, so yeah, that's true. Now, in any event, I, I think it, there's a, the beauty of golf is everyone playing with the same equipment. So I, I, I would rather see it happen that way. And, and I'm not talking about a radical rollback by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But just something that that's easily measurable on a scientific basis. That's all. Yeah. No, that that that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let me ask you something else, because you have so much knowledge about this stuff um, and perspective, which is always important. Um, we've seen throughout COVID, um, golf is the ultimate socially distanced game. Um, and so 
the numbers, um, and I see it here in LA, both at Brentwood Country Club where I belong, public courses here, just throughout the pandemic, just the numbers skyrocketing um, in terms of rounds played. Um, so golf is kind of, you know, during this horrific pandemic, gotten a real boost in terms of people, you know, going back to the game or picking it up or whatever. Um, and you always hear about growing the game. I mean, how do you sort of see us sort of the game keeping that level of interest as we hopefully get past this pandemic and there are other things for people to do again? I mean, uh, because it'd be great for the hit for the, for the future of the game, if we could sort of keep this level of interest, I would think. Well, I think it's really been good. It's exposed golf to a lot more people. In the long run, it's programs like the SCGA Junior and the First Tee uh, and programs that are run by uh, PGA professionals and, and state and regional golf associations all over the country that are trying to make golf affordable for young people. And that's really the, the answer is to get, people, to get people hooked on it at a young age. And uh, you know, I'm most familiar with the SCGA junior program where, uh, you know, they're really bringing golf right out into, into a lot of these communities where golf has never been even thought of as a possibility and really trying to, to make that not only just an athletic experience, but also a life experience. Uh, SCGA junior is now handing out hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of scholarships, dollars of scholarships every year. And uh, I mean, we see the, the success of this program, bringing kids not only to golf and making them lifelong golfers, but you know, a lot of these kids going on being the first person in their family has been to college. So, and, and it's reaching not only, it's reaching not only boys, but it's reaching girls. So, I mean, that's really where the long run, you know, benefit of golf is gonna be is, is keeping those programs alive for the juniors. And then, you know, I just think, I think it's I've been unfortunate the way it came up, came about, but it certainly has helped to have golf get all this exposure of, Hey, this is a good game. You, you can go play it. <laughs> it's going to continue with all these people working from home too. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, a, and, and, you know, and people talk about, you know, it doesn't have to always be 18 holes, just go play nine or play six or whatever. And, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, if you're working from home, it's easier to get to places and, um, you know, play, play, play whatever uh, amount of holes you can. And um, it's, it's been great to see. I mean, it's a great game and it's, um, uh, I would just love to see the enthusiasm and the participation, um, you know, continue. And you're still, we should say you're still involved with the SCGA. So you spent that 14 years on the board, end up with president and you're serving as, which is wonderful. You're serving as general counsel now, right? And you've been doing yeah, that I, for a while. I've been the volunteer general legal counsel for him since then. It's probably going on eight or nine years now. So, uh, and it's the interesting variety of legal issues that come up in golf. I mean, there's the ones you obviously think about where they're I just bet. entering into contract with people. But I mean, for example, recently uh, there was a need to, there was a need on, on one of our major amateur events, the club under following LA County rules, didn't want anyone entering the club's property who wasn't fully vaccinated. And the club wanted the SCGA to, uh, you know, try kind of pre-vet a number of people so they wouldn't end up with a bunch of people waiting in line. So, you know, there's always these little, these little issues on the fringes of the law as to what can you do, what can't you do? <laughs> uh, I mean, in that case, we ended up trying to get 
gather the information as much as we could, just have people certify that they were fully vaccinated. Then, you know, we deleted all the information we have because we didn't want to run into any, you know, long-term HIPAA violations. But, you know, there's always challenges like right, that that are right. going to come up in golf. And, and quite frankly, the, the, one, the one thing that's caused more legal problems over the years than anything else is this team golf because a, these team golfers, some of them just take it a little too seriously. So <laughs> it's, it'd be nice if they just viewed it as a friendly competition. Team golf led into legal issue. That's a little, I, uh, that sounds a little uh, foreboding. Um, yeah, that's, that's not good. Well, I mean, when, you're, when, you, when the first three guys in your team show up playing like a, with, with seven handicaps and they you know, were plus ones the year before, it just creates a little problem. And then, and oh, then every that, while, you that, just, I mean, seriously, we've had a few events where people just start yelling at each other. And so that's, anyway, it's, it seems to have calmed down a little bit. <laughs> so, I would hope so. Yeah. I would hope so. Because, I mean, there's so many events. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, you were mentioning it before I've lost track. I mean, just a huge number of tournament competitions that the SCGA does. In addition to the qualifying stuff for the USGA, it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, and, uh, they do a great job. I, I, I think, I think it's gotta be pretty well regard, pretty well established that the SCGA is, if, if it's not maybe with the Metropolitan Golf Association, it's gotta be one of the very top golf associations in the country. Um, for sure. Yeah. Well, we always say that about ourselves anyway. <laughs> there are some wonderful other <laughs> golf associations. There really are. I mean, obviously we've got NorCal, Northern California that we've, we work closely with and there's. I mean, they're, they're running outstanding organization up there in metropolitan. I mean, we interact with them. I mean, there's some really strong state and regional golf associations. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I don't mean to exclude any of our uh, other, other um, state associations, but the fact that the USGA has or looked to us, uh, you look the SCGA as often as it does speaks, speaks really well to the SCGA. Um, but um John, you know, this has been fantastic. Um, I appreciate, um, you know, your willingness to spend an hour and chat about all this stuff. And it's been, it's such a great game. And I know you feel that way as well. And, um, you know, and as, as someone who has still played regularly shoots your age, um, I should say that. Um, and, um, you know, including um, 32 on the, well, it was 32 on the front side of Carnoustie, right? Recently, That's right. Am I but remembering on a, that right? We have to say that that was recent, but that was on a dead calm day from the tease at about 6,300 yards. So, but nevertheless, it was uh, a still Carnoustie. It's still Carnoustie. That's right. <laughs> right. It's still Carnoustie. I'm sure you were like Hogan, right? On the sixth hole, you went between the fence and the bunker, right? You I hit did. It straight enough. I did do that, but <laughs> there's a nice plaque for him there too. Well, for both of you, right? You and him. Uh, but um, no, that's fantastic. Um, that's that's an amazing that's an amazing round. Um, John, I want to thank you so much for spending the time, and um, I will um, uh, we'll wrap it up, and I will look forward to hopefully seeing you soon, and we'll we'll tee it up again soon. Perfect. Thank you. It's been great, Larry. Thanks.